You guys are thrown off because we're not doing scripture reading. It's because we're going to talk about like seven words today. And uh, yeah, um, and when we do scripture reading, I just like to make it super hard for our scripture readers and have them say a bunch of hard names that I can't say myself. So um, since it's very doable, I'm just going to handle it. I'm selfish that way. Let me, uh, I'm, I'm Dave, by the way. I'm one of the pastors here. And a little bit of family business before we jump in. I, I just want to talk about uh, some things that are going to be uh, switching up as in, in our church gatherings here in the next coming weeks. We are really encouraged uh, as, as church leaders and the elders to see that uh, just the, in our city specifically, the COVID cases are, are on the decline. Um, and because of that, not this Sunday, not next Sunday, but the first Sunday of May, which is going to be May 2nd, uh, masks are no longer going to be required on a... Uh, on a Sunday morning, I'm glad some of you are excited and some of you are firing up your emails now. Um, but uh, so we're going to do that um, in, in a couple weeks. Um, we also at that time, this is really important, um, we're going to switch up service times. And so now on Sunday mornings, we're getting together at 10, 1130. We're going to go back to 9 and 11. Um, so you guys have a big decision to make. Oh, Service time excitement, that's great too. Um, so you guys are going to have to decide. You can go, big decision, 10 o'clock, you can just seize the day and get up earlier like Jesus would do and come to the 9 o'clock. Um, or you can sleep in a little bit like I would do and uh, come to the 11, and so you choose your own adventure. I, I would encourage it though if you, uh, if you are so inclined. It probably would be helpful. I imagine a lot of those 11.30 folks are going to make it to the 11, so you can make sure that there's room in that service by coming to the 9 o'clock. And so if you have any questions about that, grab any church leader and uh, let us know. We'll, we'll be happy to uh, navigate any of that or answer any questions you have. So we're going to jump into uh, Mark. I'm going to pray for you. You pray for me, then we'll dive in. So let's pray with one another for one another. Father, I thank you for my friends. Thank you for this time together that we have. And I'm so thankful that you've led us here this morning and that you've given us this, this gift of your word to look at. So just lead us, lead our hearts and our minds, and what, what you've prepared for us today, we, we want. And I, I pray for my own heart and, uh, and the words that will come. I just pray that you use all of them to glorify you and to, to serve my friends. We pray this, Jesus, in your name, God's people said. Amen. Gospel of Mark kicks off like this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It struck me this weekend that like for 2,000 years, people have been rising on a Sunday morning to gather for church. I mean, we gather today and, and sometimes we can just forget, like, the scope of that. When we go about our, our Sunday morning routine, whether that's to get coffee or, or take a walk around the block or just to kind of raise in our own time, maybe without an alarm clock, and, and come and make our way to church here on a, on a Sunday morning, sometimes it can escape us just the fact that actually this same day, 2.5 billion people around the globe are in some way, shape, or form doing what we're doing taking time on Sunday to, to gather with other believers and, and worship the risen Lord Jesus. And that's been happening for 2,000 years. And so with that in mind, I think it would be helpful for us to actually imagine for a moment together that we're not in Edmond, Oklahoma on a Sunday morning, 2001, 
but we're going to go back to a city that's even bigger. We're going to go back to the largest city at the time. That's Rome in the first century. Let's imagine that it's actually 65 AD. And we get up early. We leave our house actually even before the sun gets up. And as we leave our house, we cautiously begin to make our way through the city as we're on our way to church in darkness. And we even, from time to time, are are looking back behind us because we think we might hear footsteps. And we're really aware if anybody is following us. And we get to where we're going, yet we take a few more trips around the block just to ensure we're not being followed. And then we descend down a staircase and we're literally, literally going underground to the depths below the city. We're in the catacombs. There's some real pictures of what this looks like in ancient Rome. And as we descend this staircase and we go down, we see a light burning and we follow that light and it's a torch and around that torch has gathered a small group of Jesus followers and by this time we're already being called Christians. It was a derogatory term at first and we've kind of embraced it, made it our own. And our kids weren't checked in. (laughs) There was no coffee to grab, you know. We're here literally underground again. We're not even in someone's house and we're surrounded by bones and, and dead bodies. So why the secrecy? Why the, why the hiding? Why being underground? Why this place that's so out of view from the city that we live? Well, it's, it's, it's because just a few years earlier, the emperor, Emperor Nero, he, he began to lose his mind. Now, his, his reign as emperor started seemingly well enough, but it, his wickedness really started to bloom eventually in his rule and reign. He killed his own mother, which is never a good sign, right? He, he began to ex- execute his political enemies. Things got worse and worse and worse, and it tended to reach this wicked, awful crescendo in 64 AD where a, a fire which had come to be known as the, the Great Fire in Rome, it actually destroyed 80% of the largest city in the world. Total devastation. And it was common suspicion of all the Roman citizens that it was this wicked emperor himself that set this fire. There's historical accounts of people trying to stop the fire from being set and, and men saying that they were operating under the rule of the emperor and refused to, to stop. And so he tries to, to kind of gain favor by putting some rebuilding ordinances back, and, and he's trying to build back better, but he can't shake these, these accusations and beliefs among Rome that actually he was responsible for this total devastation. And so there's this, this group that we're a part of, this early group of believers, Christians, and, and we're not held in favor in the city anyway because we don't partake in the, the pagan rituals. And so... Nero sees us as an easy excuse, a scapegoat, and begins to proclaim that Christians were actually the ones that were responsible for burning down the city. And then he begins to command Roman soldiers to to round up Christians and were interrogated and were were tortured and more of us are even arrested. And, And by the thousands, the early church is ravished. Our friends, our family members are are murdered, they're martyred. We're wrapped in animal skins and and let loose 
in the Colosseum for animals to attack us. We're fed to lions. We're dipped in tar and literally used as human torches to light up Nero's garden for his parties in the evening. This is why we are so scared this morning. This is why we're so cautious as we head to church because being a Christian in Rome in this moment, it is dangerous. It's terrifying. Our future is uncertain and we're losing people we love and we're looking for hope and we're wondering what on earth is happening to our community. And so as we enter this underground gathering, we, we gather together, perhaps we, we subtly even sing a song in a, in a whispered way so we won't be heard, share a hymn. And we come to a, a point in our gathering where maybe after we've prayed, one of the elders comes up as they often do and perhaps they read from a scroll of the Old Testament or perhaps even sometimes we have a letter from one of the apostles that we look at together for direction and encouragement. We're the church in Rome. We've already at this point received Romans. That would have been a fun series to do for the first time. And yet something happens today. One of the elders stands up and he says, I have something new this morning. It's something John Mark has written for us. And he unrolls that scroll and he says, in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we're hearing something together as the church gathered for the very first time. We're hearing a gospel. Something entirely new we'll come to see. Something that we've never heard before. Something that's never been intentionally, systematically written and recorded. It's good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. We've heard stories told, but here written for us for the first time. A book, a true story about who Jesus is and what it means for us and what he's done. And it will come to be known as the gospel of Mark. And it's going to help us have courage and hope. And it's going to help us see how to suffer. And it's going to help us understand and, and get a vision of the kingdom of God. And, and most importantly, it's going to reveal to us in deeper and truer ways Jesus and who he is and what he's done and help us see him more clearly. It's going to change our lives. So today, we, 2,000 years later, we kick off our study of the Gospel of Mark. And the plan is that we're going to be in this book for a year. I actually know when I'm going to preach Easter 2022. I'm going to preach the resurrection in the book of Mark because I think that's the Sunday that we will end. So we're, with, with the exception of a few breaks, going to, going to take about a year to just slowly saturate ourselves in this gospel and go through it. So as we begin to dive in in the coming weeks and throughout this year, I want us to actually see a few things about the gospel of Mark as we prepare to dive into the gospel of Mark. And I think a good and helpful first question is, why is this gospel called the gospel of Mark? Who's the author? Who is Mark? And what's interesting is if you've read this book, the Gospel of Mark never mentions the author's name, but unbroken church history, you know, back to the very beginning of, of the early church, this book was understood to be written by a young man named Mark. And he wasn't, he wasn't an apostle, but his family and their home, they played a really important role in the early church. 
Some scholars actually think that it's Mark's family's house that was the location of the Last Supper. We don't know that for sure. But we do know that it, it was a home and it was a place that became a gathering place for the early Christians. I don't know if you guys remember the story, but there's this really kind of funny story that happens in Acts chapter two, or Acts chapter 12. And what's happening is Peter's actually been arrested. He's been arrested and he's in jail. And so this, this gathering of the early church happens in a home and it happens in Mark's home. Mark's home with his, with his mom. And, and the, there's this prayer gathering and they're praying that Peter would be released from jail. And miraculously, what happens is an angel shows up, kicks Peter while he's asleep, and wakes him up. And is like, hey, follow me. And, uh, and leads Peter out of prison. Peter doesn't, he's, he's evidently a heavy sleeper because it takes him a while to realize he's not dreaming. And he's let out of the prison. He shows up at this prayer meeting where they're praying that he would be released from jail. And he knocks on the door. A little girl answers the door. She's so thrilled that it's Peter. She doesn't let him in. She just leaves him locked out of the house to tell everybody Peter's here. And then although they're praying for Peter's release, they don't believe that he's there. You know, it sounds like some of the prayer meetings that I've led. And he's like, God actually did what we were asking for, and we don't know to do that. You know, it's so shocking, but that's what happened. They all gathered and prayed that Peter would be released, and he was released, and he comes to Mark's house, because that's where all this was happening. Mark was in the mix in the early church. He was the cousin of a guy named Barnabas, who led John Mark into ministry. But he was a young man that had, had a shaky beginning to ministry. We can read about this in Acts 13. See, the Apostle Paul took John Mark on him on his first missionary journey, and we don't know the circumstances, but we know eventually John Mark left that missions trip. He left Paul. And then Paul was not happy about that, right? Paul thought that John Mark kind of abandoned him and left him hanging. And so when it came time for Paul to take another missionary journey, And John Mark wanted to go, and Paul and Barnabas were talking about it, and Paul was like, hey, no way, I don't trust John Mark. He's going to pull out. He's going to abandon. He's he's not going to have what it takes to come along with me. There's this deep disagreement between Paul and Barnabas, and it actually results in a a splitting with these two missionary partners. And and Paul takes a, a guy named Silas, and Barnabas takes John Mark, and they go two separate ways. So there's actually a brokenness in the relationship between specifically John Mark, this young man, and the apostle Paul. We see in a beautiful way, though, we don't know the details, but we know it happened, that Paul and John Mark later reconcile. If you guys remember back to our series, 2 Timothy, at the end of that book, 2 Timothy, while Paul's in prison in Rome, who does he ask for? Hey, send John Mark to me. He's useful to me in ministry. And when the Apostle Peter wrote his epistle to the church, 1 Peter, he affectionately calls Mark his son. We almost get the impression, if you remember who who Timothy was to Paul, it's as if John Mark was that to Peter. He was a friend, a companion, a pupil, and a spiritual son. So interestingly, we see this young man, John Mark, he has a close relationship with Paul and a close relationship with the Apostle Peter. And we don't know if it happened at the end of Peter's life or after Peter had actually been martyred and killed in this wave of persecution. But somewhere along the line, this young man, John Mark, began to, inspired by the Holy Spirit, with the apostle Peter as his primary source, who was there firsthand to see these things, begin to write down an account of Jesus' life and ministry. 
And it shouldn't escape us. It struck me anew this week that even the story of Mark's ministry is a story of grace. Like John Mark, some of us this morning are really aware that we've let people down or we've made mistakes or we've maybe abandoned people that needed us or we've just fallen short in some way. And we feel the weight of that. We're wrestling with that. We carry that in with us this morning. And John Mark knew how that felt. He knew the weight of that and the shame of that. And yet the Spirit of God worked in him and through him and it grew, the Spirit of God grew in him a, a strength and a restoration and he received grace and relationships that were strained or broken were, were reconciled by the grace and the work of God and, and the Spirit of God would use him in really significant ways. It's a huge encouragement to us. He gets to write the very first gospel. And what an amazing Unique gospel it is. I think it would be helpful for us to look at some of the characteristics of Mark. Mark is action-packed. It's actually unique in comparison to the the other accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew and Luke and John. Mark was the first written, but it's unique in actually how it was written as well. If you were to sit down and read Mark, if you're a slow reader from beginning to end, it would take you about two hours, about as long as it is for us to watch a movie. And why that's fitting is because Mark plays a lot like a movie. It's filled with action and intensity. It's like, it's like an action flick. Actually, the last movie I remember seeing in the theaters was 1917. I don't know if any of you guys saw that. Um, but I remember actually Ryan and I went and saw that on a mandate together, um, which we should do that again, Ryan, but uh, it was fun. But we, we go to 1917. I didn't know a lot about the movie. I knew it was about World War I, and we sit down, and re- there's no introduction. It was just, boom, it took off. And then it's just like a two-hour battle scene. And I remember we walked out of that movie, and we didn't even say anything. We just like, were like sighing heavily, like, oh, man, wow. You know, (laughs) we kind of stood there and were processing. That was intense and amazing and, and hard and beautiful and heroic. And that's what the gospel of Mark is like in many ways. It's just a continual shot, fast paced, never a dull moment. You hardly have a chance to catch your breath. It blows us away. Jesus comes, he, he speaks, he heals, he's surrounded by crowds, he's always in demand, he's always confronting and fighting forces of darkness. Mark is the gospel of go, where we see the servant savior on the move, and Jesus is formidable in the gospel of Mark. It records actually more miracles than any other of the gospels, although it's shorter, and the word immediately in the Greek appears 42 times in the gospel of Mark. A distant second is Luke, which says immediately like seven times. Mark is written in the present tense, and it's this vivid recording of these eyewitness news briefs. When we read this together and we take it chunk by chunk, what we're going to be confronted with every week is just the the formidable strength and love and action of Jesus. He is getting things done. And it's this new kind of book. Remember, take us back to that that moment where the church receives this. 
It's, it's a gospel that's entirely new. We, people wouldn't even know what the term gospel meant. It, it, you know, there were great books that were certainly written about great men, but this is not a biography or a memoir about a merely great man. This is meant to tell something to people entirely new. The heart of the book is to answer a question, and that question is, who is Jesus of Nazareth? And it's a question that we're confronted with throughout the entirety of this book again and again. Jesus asks it kind of at, at the center of the book, Mark chapter 8, 27. Jesus asks Peter and his disciples, hey, who do you say I am? At the climax of the conflict of this book, a high priest will ask Jesus at the end, hey, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And the answer is given. This isn't a, a mystery. There's nothing hidden from us. Nothing's kept in the dark in the Gospel of Mark. It, it's going to say throughout the answer to that question. Jesus, next week, we're going to look at his baptism and the voice of the Father resounds out from heaven after Jesus is baptized. And he says, you are my beloved son and with you I am well pleased. When Jesus asks, who do you say I am? Peter's going to answer and confess, you are the Christ. God the Father isn't going to just speak once. He's going to speak again, really at the, the climax of the book in many ways is this amazing, mysterious moment of the transfiguration where Jesus is hanging out with Moses and Elijah and the voice of the Father, Father speaks again and he says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And even at the very end, a Roman soldier who took part in the, the crucifixion of Jesus when it's all said and done, we'll, we'll say truly this man was the son of God. The answer is going to be given to us all throughout the book. And here we get it right at the very beginning, the opening statement right out of the gate, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. I think I've told you guys this before, but when I, when I read books, I tend to skip introductions. And I think when we read the Bible, we actually can read through verses like this quickly and not slow down to take in what they're communicating to us because we're like, let's get to the good stuff, let's get to the narrative, or let's skip you know, this introduction to this letter or whatever. Let's just dive in to the verses that follow. But what's laid out for us right here at the beginning this is the good stuff. This is actually the theme of the entire book. It's going to tell us three things that this book is going to, to reinforce again and again and again. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The first thing that we can see just in this introductory statement is that this book is gospel. Why did Mark write this book? The answer in one word can be given to us, gospel. That word gospel explicitly means good news. We say it a lot and we use it in different contexts, but gospel means good news. What's Mark about? It's about communicating, proclaiming, and sharing good news. The Greek word for gospel is euangelion. It's a, it's a word that's originally rooted in a military context. So let's say we live in antiquity, we live a long time ago, and we're a part of a community in a village, and what would happen again and again is that we would wake up one morning and outside of the gates of our city would be an army and they are not there to, to do any good. They're there actually to steal and kill and destroy. They're there to take us out. And so we would gather our forces and our army would be sent out to, to wage war against them in our defense and then we would wait and we would pray and we would hope 
as the battle would rage on, and we would, on pins and needles, knowing our life depended on it, we would wait for word to come back. And, and just maybe word would come back and a messenger, a messenger would be sent. And his message, if our forces were victorious, that message would be a message of you and Galeon. It would be a gospel. It would be good news. The proclamation would be, hey, victory has been won. Life has been won. We won't die. We're going to live. That's the root of this good news, it's meeting. So as we read this, we need to keep that, that depth of that richness of the meeting of gospel in mind. It's not an instruction manual for us, a gospel. It's an announcement of something that has been taken place. The proclamation of true good news that if we hear it and we receive it, it changes. It's a reality that has shifted and it's been something that's been done on our behalf. Most of the time, really good news happens because there's something that's really bad. It's good news because those forces of evil have been defeated. And the bad news and the hard news of, of all of Scripture, the reason that, that this is such good news is because we need saving. Scripture says everyone has, has sinned. That's a word that maybe we're familiar with or maybe not. But if God is the author of all things, the creator of all things, our maker, and he made us to, to live life with him, following him, we, we commit treason against him. We reject him. We run from him. We fall short of his glory and the wages of that sin is death. That God himself is life and we run from life and find only death. That's the, the heavy news, the, the hard news, the, the real state that each of us find ourselves in and we need saving. We need somebody to fight for us. We need rescue and, and the heart of the message of Mark comes from, from Jesus himself when he says in chapter 10, he talks about his mission and his purpose and he said, I came not to be served but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. That the good news of the gospel of Mark is that Jesus broke into the world and won a victory. And if we receive that as the gift that it is and, and, and follow him as our king, that changes us and actually brings us life. And that's just the very beginning, in the beginning of the gospel. But Mark is just getting started. He doesn't stop there. He goes on to make bold statements about the identity of Jesus. He says, Jesus Christ. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's not Jesus' last name, although I thought that when I was younger, right? <laughs> People didn't actually have last names back then. It was Jesus Joseph's son or Jesus of, of Nazareth. Literally, Jesus the Christ, it means that he is the Messiah. That's the Hebrew translation of that word. It's, it's actually speaking to, to who Jesus is, and it means that he's the anointed one. It's speaking to his royalty, his divinity, that, that he is the promised king, that, that the people, God's people, have been waiting for years and years because of prophecies and promise that a king would come, like David, but this king would, would never fail. He would never go away, and he would rule on his throne forever, and Mark out the gate is saying, hey, Jesus of Nazareth is the king of kings. He's the greatest king of history. And he's not just the Christ. He's the son of God. 
A victory has been won for you, Mark's saying, and it's been won by the greatest king in history, and he's the very son of God. This is the defining line of the book. This is the foundation of our faith. And I just put myself back in, in that context of I'm underground and I'm a part of that early church and things are so hard. I've gotten together to, to, to worship and celebrate the fact that, that Jesus is the bringer of, of good news, that he's proclaimed this good news, that it's real in him and that he is the Messiah, that he's the son of God. And I look around and I'm, in, I'm literally underground and I'm surrounded by bones and I'm in hiding and it looks like things are so hard right now. And I thought about what had been written to this church already as Paul wrote Romans and how that letter begins. Paul wrote, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture concerning his son, who is a descendant from David, according to the flesh, right? That's Messiah. That's the Christ. He was the king. And Paul goes on to say, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by what? His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so why were those people there that day? Just because Jesus was a really great teacher? Were they getting up early and hiding because of threat of their life to gather together in an underground graveyard to, to do a book study because Jesus was really nice? No, they were there because a grave was empty. <laughs> they were there because a man had died, but he rose again. And then a bunch of people watched him actually ascend to heaven. And that had fundamentally changed who they were. Men like Peter and Paul were so convinced of that reality, they would bore witness to it with their own eyes. They laid their life down because of the fact of, of the reality of who Jesus is and what he had done and where he was on his throne, ruling and reigning alive. And so when they sat there in the midst of persecution and hardship, literally surrounded by death and darkness, they knew something to be true that was real, that transcended how they felt and their present reality, that, that Jesus was alive. And that even somebody who seemed as formidable and strong as Nero could not touch him. That Nero was the emperor of Rome, but Jesus was the king of the universe and he was bringing his kingdom. So Jesus was alive meant that they weren't scared of death. Like Paul, they could say to live is Christ, to die is gain. That Jesus had defeated death. They had no reason to be scared. That Jesus had risen from the grave, which means that their justification had been purchased. That they were free and forgiven. That Jesus was alive and ruling and reigning, which means they had been given the helper, the Holy Spirit, who was on the move and shaping them and forming them into the women and men they were called to be, that they had hope and joy unshakable because Jesus is alive. That is the message of the gospel of Mark, that he came in love, that he lived perfectly, that in, in love he laid down his life and in power he rose from the dead and then we gather like they gathered regardless of what we face because that is true and it has changed us, it is changing us, it's changing the very world. Some years ago, there was a scholar named Dr. E.V. Ryu. And if you like took a Greek course in college, you probably had one of his books. 
He was really well known because he did this amazing translation of the works of Homer, the, Odyad, uh, the Odyssey and the Iliad, and he, he translated those into English. And so if you have that Penguin's classic version of those books, it was a translation from Dr. Ryu. And so after he had finished the translation of Homer from, from Greek into English, the publisher, Penguin Classics, said, hey, will you actually translate the Gospels for us? Now, Dr. Yu, he was an agnostic. He wasn't a man of faith, but he agreed to do it. He thought it would be an interesting project. And when his son heard about what he was going to do, his son said this. He said, it will be interesting to see what my father will make of the four Gospels, but it will be more interesting to see what the four Gospels make of my father. And his son didn't have to wait very long because within a year, translating the Gospels from Greek to English. Those words the doctor had seen weren't just something that he was pouring over, but they were pouring over him. Weren't just something that he was examining and studying, but they were examining and studying him. And he was merely translating those words, but they were transforming him by the power of the Spirit. And within a year, he had put his faith in Jesus as a Christian because he's rooted himself in the good news of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And so we can and should ask ourselves as a, as a church, as we kick off in this endeavor, ask ourselves the same question. What is this in-depth study of the Gospel of Mark going to make of you and me? If you're here this morning and you're just exploring Christianity, man, we are so honored you're here. You might not know what you believe or you're certain you don't, and you could be like Dr. Yu and just, you're not really sure what ultimate reality looks like. You're not sure what to think of God. My hope and my prayer and the truth is that if you actually truly examine this book, I have full confidence that you will see the true identity of Jesus, that he's not just a great teacher or philosopher or even prophet or miracle worker, but he is someone who has won the victory that you need more than anything on your behalf. He is your king. He is the very son of God who in love came and died and rose again to change your life. Come with us. Read this story. Study it and see the truth and the life that it holds out for you. And if you're maybe like me, and you've been a Christian, and you've been following Jesus for a long time, my prayer for us is that our faith in Jesus will be strengthened, that we'll see him as, as this saving servant who loves people in action, that he steps into crisis, that he carries the power of the Spirit, that he moves towards people in love. May we follow him. May we grow to look more like him. May we be stirred to worship him with greater strength and know him with greater depths. Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word, and we specifically this morning thank you for the gospel of Mark. And we just hold out, not only today, but hold before you um, our plans as a church for this next year, just fully believing that you're leading us to study this good news in this moment. And we pray as Jesus taught us to pray. We simply pray for our hearts as individuals, as families, as a congregation, as, as 
a whole of frontline church. Your kingdom come, your will be done in us as it is in heaven. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. God's people said, amen. If you're a Christian who's been baptized, I want to invite you to uh, grab that set of cracker and juice. And, you know, we're, we're about to literally take in um, just some, some really sweet juice, shockingly sweet sometimes, and, uh, and just a, a, little, a little wafer. But it, it's a moment where we celebrate Jesus and who he is, what he's done, where we remember, where we expectantly wait on the Holy Spirit to do some things in us. But it's a picture of us taking in Christ, the truth of who he is. So with that before us, we take this bread, Jesus, proclaiming that you're the bread of life. And just like we eat, we do that as a symbol, as a celebration, as we receive you and all who you are and what that means for us. You're the bread of life who gives us life in the midst of the death that sin has wrought. You rose again so that we can rise with you to newness of life. We receive and celebrate. And we drink this juice. We take in the sweetness of the truth that you poured out your blood for the forgiveness of our sins and you rose again purchasing our justification. Long live forever on his throne our king who has conquered death so that we can live forever with you. Let's sing.